Welcome to So You Can Heal. I'm Abby Parker, a licensed mental health counselor and a therapist at Still Point. And I'm Josh. I'm a licensed social worker and therapist at Still Point. Josh, so I hear that we're going to practice listening today. Um, yeah. Being the person that edits these, I notice that I rarely <laughs> allow for other people to like continue with a thought without me feeling like I need to add things of my own, which is like so white male of me. <laughs> so <laughs> I am going to do my best at not feeling like I need to share every single time someone else does and trying to be present to what other people are actually saying. So yeah. And I want you to share. Like, I think the things you say are really interesting. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I feel like I, I mean, I'll still share. But I also feel like that when, what I've noticed is that there are times, not all the time, that when you're talking and you say something that's pretty profound, like it may catch me off guard or whatever, and I don't always know how to respond. Hmm. So I will say something about myself trying to tie in to some way I mean which is conversational but at the same time like I don't want to always pull the attention back to me especially when something that you've said is really important Um, so I'm going to try and be more mindful of those moments Um, great thank you this will be fun (laughs) Sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think it's really important, especially for today, because we're talking about taking time for ourselves. Or like, for me, like, what does it mean to take back my time? Which if time was something that I can control, which I can't. But sometimes I just need some time to myself. Time. I don't know like, what went through my head of like Time's not real. I know, right? <laughs> it's a construct it's fine it's on a clock I do think being in a space where we are able to reclaim the time reclaim that part of ourselves that allows us to take time for ourselves or to you know nourish the parts of us that we often neglect I think that is really important Yeah, I like that. Nourish the parts that we often neglect. It's funny, like, knowing that we were going to talk about this, I think in my brain, I was like, okay, I'm going to make sure to take time for myself before this so I can tell everyone that I did it. So I can be a good student. (laughs) How'd that work out? Oh, I got about 10 minutes. (laughs) Hey, that's more than I got. (laughs) And I read two pages of a book. It was really great. So what does that mean to you to take time for yourself? I think I'm the type of person that really appreciates solitude. I'm a very introverted person. And so by taking time for myself, a lot of time, like, especially more recently, because I interact with so many different people, I need that space to kind of hold my own energy, my own thoughts, my own feelings, or process through whatever I need to. 
And so it, right now it means solitude to me. I can imagine being so many things to so many different people can be very draining. It can. And usually I get super exhausted. And I think I've done this my entire life. Like this is, I mean, in a working family, especially like blue collar, working, hardworking people, doing your best, like you just work. And this, this is funny because the other day I got jealous of Kevin because he told me in high school that he got to have study halls. And I was like, what? You got study halls? Like I never took study halls. And I was make I was joking with him because like that seems to be the story of my life. Like I, I don't choose the study hall. <laughs> and so I get super exhausted in order to have to take the study hall. So now you're kind of forcing yourself to take small study halls. I guess so, yes. <laughs> what is that like? Well, sometimes I don't know what to do with myself. I'll start doing things for other people or I'll do my work in my study hall <laughs> or the dishes or whatever else I'm supposed to be taking care of. My shoulds, like I should be doing this. And I actually like doing some of that stuff, but sometimes I have no interest in doing that. And so today I read for 10 minutes and it was good. Well, what do you think your ideal adult study hall would look like? Oh man, now we're talking. I think I would travel to a far off land in a forest where I could hike to a little cabin, like a tiny house and just be with myself, have music interesting things to like read or look at, meditate, have slow movement, somehow magically have meals appear for me that I didn't have to cook, but were like delicious. I, and you know what? I think the best part of my study hall would be like having it be warm enough to go out and see the stars and not be bitten by mosquitoes. That, that is my perfect study hall. What do you think about that? That actually sounds really nice. I know, right? What about you? What's your perfect study hall? I would assume it's probably somewhere in the mountains. Yeah. What would I be doing there? Yeah. What would you, well, doing isn't, I mean, you don't have to do anything, but what would you want it to be like? I guess for me, like I would, if it could just be magically stocked with like all types of essential oils and like herbs so that I can do different fun things like make aromatherapy type things and stuff like that and a fully stocked art studio with oh. like clay and paint I would be in heaven okay good to know I'm putting some things on my Christmas list for you then <laughs> yeah like I really want eventually at some point to have like an art studio where hmm. I have clay and I mean even a small kiln but those things are so expensive there are some some cities have like community kilns at like art studios where people fire things for you but I mean, obviously not around where I'm at so and hearing that like I can imagine you making like beautiful dish sets like and when I was in high school in an art class like 
we never used pottery wheels. Mm-hmm. So, like, I've never really used one, but I've always thought, like, it would be so fun to have one. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, we always just hand-built everything. But even then, like, it was a lot of fun. Remember one year, like, my art teacher gave me, like, a big 10-pound or I don't even know if it's 10 pounds, but, like, the big blocks that they get. Maybe more than 10, probably, because it was heavy. And, like, all summer, I just got to sculpt. I still had, well, I had most of them. And then, like, in this last move, someone dropped the box of all of my stuff in them. So they're all shattered. Oh, I'm so sorry. Some of them were pretty neat. Mm Mm-hmm. But yeah, I would probably be in the mountains someplace, just being creative. But I'm also the type that, like, I go stir-crazy pretty quick. So yeah, I would definitely need at least someone relatively close, so that in those moments when I needed human interaction, I could walk next door. (laughs) (laughs) It's one of those things that, like, I like being alone. But I want someone else there so that I can be alone with someone. Sure. Because if I'm, like, by myself, like, every creek is, like, a monster hiding somewhere. (laughs) Even as a 35-year-old man, like, I'm still like, yep, there's somebody, something in there. (laughs) Well, Josh, and I think what you're saying is really significant because even when we take time for ourselves, there is that desire to still have someone either nearby or that you like knows what you're doing or you know what they're doing. Like there's something to that. Brett will like be playing video games and I'll play a game on my phone. I mean, we are doing our own things, but we're like there. And especially after some of the days that we have, like in this moment, like I'm recognizing like, yeah, like checking out is totally needed. Like, I don't want to always feel like I have to be something for someone because I feel for myself that when I'm constantly in a role, I I lose myself really quickly. When you're constantly in a role, you lose yourself really quickly. Yeah. And I think this is the first relationship where I haven't become something for someone so much so that I've lost myself. And I think that's always a dance, like ebbing and flowing in and out of that. And I think like the important thing for me is recognizing when to be those things for someone else and when it's okay to be me Mm -hmm. and to have my own time. I don't know, like for me, like I find that it has been easier to do those things when I'm when I know for myself that I can trust the other person. Mm, I think that's a really good point. I think that is really important to be able to have that calmness or that security or that sense of safety in knowing that those other people are doing like in their own space and they're allowing you to be in your own space and you're allowing yourself to be in that space. And I think that takes practice Because if you don't practice being in your own space and you're always playing those roles, then it it takes time and effort to get back into 
like that self care practice. It's been a minute since I've actually done like self care, self care, but I will say, so as everyone knows, like I work with Abby, she's one of my supervisors. Well, she's one of the owners of the, of the office that I work <laughs> at, but, um, like I do supervision with her, with you quite a bit and Beth too. But like, I find that recently, like within the past couple of supervisions, when we have intentionally made the choice to do supervision slash kind of like therapy, I've recognized I have started to be more willing to do things to take care of myself better. Hmm. Tell me more. It's almost like I, I don't know, whatever I've processed or started processing is giving me permission to trust that whatever I need to do to take care of myself is worth the time. Yeah. And I think that's such a significant shift. Like it's a mind shift to be open because I see them as opportunities. And I guess that's what I mean by like that practicing piece. It totally is practice. I've had various types of practices throughout my life, but until I started doing therapy, the whole idea kind of escaped me of like, it takes a lot of work (laughs) to have a practice. But yeah. But I also find that not only does it take work, but if you enjoy what you're doing, it's not. It's not like you want to beat yourself over the head with something or bang your head against the wall. Like it's a willing component. It's a willing price that you're willing Mm -hmm. to give. No, I think that's so true. Because there are certain things that I am so not willing to do. And I wish I was, but I'm just not. (laughs) Yeah. So how do we know when we need to take time for ourselves? When I think I kind of answered this, like if I start seeing signs of exhaustion, which I think if I were to judge myself, I think that's a really bad measuring point. Um, So I'm curious of what you will say about this. If I'm feeling exhausted, I will notice that I start getting more grouchy or I can't focus on anything. Like it's really hard to maintain any sort of concentration. Mm-hmm. I will be more tired or I no- will notice that I'm not sleeping well because my mind is racing Yeah, or my anxiety's high. And yeah. I'm glad you pointed those two out, like the concept of like either being like frustrated or angry or upset or anxious and like lacking attention because I- I also experience those. And like in the therapy world, we call that dysregulation. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And kind of going back to what you said earlier, like there are things that you aren't willing to do. I wonder, like, because I'm the same way, like I wonder what part in me makes me not willing to do certain things that I know that may be beneficial for me. Mm-hmm. Like what in me is like, eh, I'll pass. Yeah. And I, I think that is such a loaded question. I mean, if I were to answer it personally, I think the things that I learned 
growing up of how to like check out those things were really not helpful to me and but they became my preference because I knew how to do it I knew how like relaxing it felt there was like dopamine hits in my brain with I mean it's watching tv right like after you get home from school you have your snack you watch a show you do your homework like whatever that routine was and I loved watching TV. I still love watching TV and I have to be really careful with it because I can binge watch Netflix shows like nobody's business. And I start to get dysregulated. And I think it's, I mean, I have had to manage it throughout my entire life of finding other ways to feel like rejuvenated or refreshed instead of numbing out. And I think I was listening to, it was Tara Brock She's a really interesting person to listen to. She has books and meditation. She has like a 40 day free, like online course regarding meditation. She wrote Radical Acceptance. And in one of her talks on YouTube, she talks about different refuges and how people can find refuge in things like television or like whatever their habitual numbing exercises or you can find refuge that are actually fulfilling and nourishing to you and how do you know the difference and that really got me to thinking like well what are the things that I find refuge in that are actually nourishing to me and sometimes it's harder for me to do those things but once I do them I feel so much better like even just drinking water and I know that sounds ridiculous No, I don't think drinking water sounds ridiculous because I drink coffee all day and I wonder why I shed like a snake sometimes. (laughs) I am like completely dehydrated. (laughs) But I can totally relate to like the numbing out piece because it was very similar to like my get home from school, you snack, you watch TV, you chill. And I think that... I mean, it's that adaptation piece, right? Right. Where we have adapted to, like, numbing out and assuming that is taking time for ourselves rather than really taking time for ourselves. And I'm not saying that, like, vegging out and watching a TV show or something can't be taking time for yourself. Because I think it can be. But I also think that it can become, like you said, it's like that tricky balance of what is taking time for myself versus doing it so much that I am now numbing out and kind of avoiding. Right. I tend yeah. to go too much and avoid. <laughs> well, yeah, because I mean, I can avoid going to bed, doing the like doing my chores, like I can avoid a lot of stuff. <laughs> that that avoidance piece becomes really strong when you're in that numb stage avoiding relationships, avoiding responsibilities, avoiding other self-care things. I think taking time for yourself is, in some cases, like an ultimate act of rebellion, especially depending on like the family dynamics we were raised in mm. and can be really scary. I mean, because knowing like how I was raised, like very codependent, And doing anything for yourself meant that you were a bad guy. 
because yeah. you are not taking care of everyone else's needs. Right. And being the person that, I mean, I was the family therapist. <laughs> the way I got into Ta-da! therapy now. <laughs> but being overly responsible for everyone else's feelings when they don't want to or know how to necessarily manage them on their own gave me a sense of responsibility that taking care of myself was not really an option. So it, it is really hard to to sit in that space and to not want to numb out. Mm-hmm. I think being so young, though, like those types of patterns that get built, we don't have an awareness that they're even being built. And so they sit in our subconscious and they become patterns of those. And because all of the things that you were talking about us avoiding, like I would intentionally try to avoid those things because to me, like if I did any of those things, like relationships, like, well, I'm overly responsible for everybody. So I don't want to get into that. It's very easy to fall into a space of that numbing state. I mean, like we said, like that adaptation piece. I have adapted to being overly responsible by numbing out rather than actually taking care of myself. Yeah. And sometimes that's setting boundaries, which is really hard, especially for families that like boundaries means you don't like us and boundaries means Mm -hmm. like if I can't push you around and you won't do exactly what I say when I say it or you won't listen to me and tell me what I want to hear, then no. You're a bad person. And what's so funny, what I notice in my family, which I love everyone in my family, but we are kind of screwy. Like, it's usually the people that say the worst things about you are usually projecting every single time. Well, you're a bad person. You never listen. (laughs) (laughs) Are we hearing ourselves right now? Yeah. Yeah, that's very true. I'm kind of going off on a tangent having therapy and I don't want to. But yeah. We are practicing listening today. (laughs) Right. Well, and if I were to add to that, I think I could tell you about a lot of family rules, whether I've experienced them or witnessed them. But the one that sticks out for me today is this concept of disappointment. And I don't even know if it was ever really spoken in my family. But I think I was always trying to perform so people wouldn't be disappointed in me. And I think I've had to process this concept that disappointment is not a dirty word because I remember growing up and thinking that it was the most horrible word I have ever heard. You saying that, what that reminds me of is teaching. Hmm. And I don't remember where or who told me or where the idea came from. But I remember a teacher telling me one time that letting a kid know that they they disappointed you is the quickest way for a kid to change behavior. Oh, that makes my stomach hurt. I don't like that at all. Yeah. And I mean, to recognize that it is reinforced. Right lots of places 
I want to change that for people. I want to change that in my own relationships for myself. Because like if I, I think I know that there's quality in taking time for myself. But if I continuously have this subconscious negative thought or this pattern that has developed that I will disappoint someone, then I'm not going to. And I don't want that. I was actually working on this um, in brain spotting with someone for myself, like someone was brain spotting me. And I forget the different facets that, that came like up for me. But there I was working with that concept of disappointment and how I might not have to own it for other people. Whereas a kid, like there was that attachment that I felt like I had to own the fact that I disappointed someone. And now as an adult, it can be different. And I honestly don't even know what that means yet, but I'm still working with it. And I think that's really powerful that we don't have to hold someone else's disappointment. Right. I mean, that's not ours to hold. I mean, same goes for anger or frustration. It doesn't mean we don't witness it or we don't hear it or we don't like try and understand where it's coming from because that's their hurt. Sure. But that, I mean, that's a very mature way <laughs> of looking at it. But yeah, I think where I'm at is I don't want to hold other, I don't want to feel responsible for other people's disappointment. Or maybe it's that I don't want to own their disappointment. Especially if I'm trying to be thoughtful in how I take time for myself or how I nourish myself and still stay in relationship with those people. So how do we manage disappointment within any type of relationship I mean, I think you are saying, like, being curious about it, and I do think that is important. Well, and I think there's, like, the outsider's perspective, right? Like, they're, like, me as a therapist, or me, like, witnessing someone else's process, I can say those things. But if I'm really being honest about what I have to go through in managing that, it, I mean, it's loss, it's sadness, it's grieving, it's forgiving myself for potentially impacting the relationship in that way, even if I didn't do anything to cause that. I remember one time somebody told me that there are three things that lead to upset. Unspoken expectation, unclear communication, and our attention's not being clear. And then I think disappointment comes from an expectation that someone has. Mm-hmm whether that is spoken or not. And now we are expected to feel some type of way because of an expectation that someone had of us that may not even be realistic. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought up the that concept of expectation and how that connects to disappointment. I think that's key. And I think that fear of not living up to someone's expectation and that fear of disappointing people can keep us from doing a lot of things. Right. So as I was on Facebook or Instagram and checking out as we do, there was a quiz, you know, what level of mindfulness are you at or what's the evolution of your soul or whatever. I don't remember what the exact quiz was about. 
But essentially, it's about limitless manifestation. And it's all about, I mean, granted, I'm getting ready to go into the third lesson of like 50. <laughs> but, but what I'm gathering so far is that like those self-defeating thoughts, beliefs, patterns, they're like they're all programs. Like they're all subconscious beliefs that keep us from whatever it is. And usually it's keeping us from being happy. Mm -hmm. I mean, and the course is really about like, why does the law of attraction not work? And it's because of these underlying beliefs that we have that we don't really get to see, but are really running everything. And if the belief is there that you have to perform at a certain level to make everyone else happy, then you are probably going to be miserable. Because you are living a life that's not really old. I mean, it doesn't mean that not parts of it are really you. But there are large parts of that story, if we're living for other people, that take you out of the equation. And what I've listened to so far is really interesting. And a lot of it aligns with like the brain spotting and Imago concepts that like I know of and that we've talked about. But yeah, it is super fascinating. And I, yeah, I think that the conflict that comes in when someone is not living in their purpose or living in other people's purposes, there, there does seem to be a lot of, a lot of conflicting emotion that comes through that really weighs heavily on people that they don't know how to move out of, let, forgive themselves for, or let go of, or shift paths. I find that sometimes it's easier for us to live for someone else's purpose rather than for our own because it gets really scary when you feel like you don't know what that purpose is. Mm -hmm. And I think the beautiful thing from what I found for myself is that you create that purpose. Like there's no like, you must do this. Like mm -hmm. what makes you happy? Do that. That's a purpose. <laughs> well, it really is a paradigm shift from where like our parents came from, where our grandparents came from, where the generations before them came from, because, I mean, whatever, whatever culture you were in, there was a sense of things that you had to do, like you had to do certain things to survive, right. or there were certain duties that you had to perform. You said duties. <laughs> yes, duties, D-U-T-I-E-S. Yeah. And so I think it is like a new concept to live in your purpose or create your purpose and start seeking that instead of what you think you should be doing, which come from the expectations. That idea of service out of obligation really isn't service. Right. Because it doesn't mean that you don't serve or it doesn't mean you don't give or that you don't have relationship with people. 
but how do we figure out what we want or need? Well, if I go to back to my magical fairy fort in my study hall that I've created for myself that I've never been to, by the way, I mean, that's where you find it, right? You have to start practicing, trying things out, seeing what fits. What may have fit at one time might not fit now, or it might be different than what you expect. I think one of the first steps for me was knowing that I have things that I need, things that I want, and things that I desire. And actually being open to that has made all the difference. No, I think for me, recognizing my wants, needs, desires, and where those things are coming from Mm. is really important. Because I still think that we can want, need, and desire things out of a place of lack. Mm. Tell me more. If we desire a relationship because we think that's what's going to make us happy, we are operating out of this idea that we lack something intrinsically within ourselves that this other person is going to provide to make me happy. Then we get in a relationship and when we find out that, oop, I'm not happy here, let's go find another one, it's the wrong person, or a job, or money, or whatever. And again, like that's that subconscious programming like from this course that I'm taking Ziad Masri I believe is his name and like it is super fascinating taking a different kind of spin on it but like that's why manifestation the law of attraction doesn't work because the things we are wanting needing and desiring are from that place of lack well I need this new job because that will make me happy because it's going to make me a bunch of money and money's going to make me happy. No, like it's not going to make you happy. I mean, it may help things, but at the end of the day. So I do think that for me lately, I have been trying to be very mindful of what desires, wants and needs that come up for me and recognizing what is really tied to them. Mm-hmm. Because if it's to do anything outside of kind of nurture me and in the process make me happy, like doing art, I don't do art so that the outcome can make me happy. I do it because the process is fun. Okay. So I do think that that is an important distinction to recognize. Like if we do want to do something like that, then it's important to recognize where those things are coming from or what the root of them is if we constantly are living and seeking from the needs the wants and desires that are based in that lack we will constantly be kind of manifesting more lack no matter how far we go with those things there will always be something more beyond that that's going to really make me happy so how do you tell the difference that i don't know just yet okay Um, fine but what i know for myself so far is for example why do i want to be a therapist i want to be a therapist because i like to help people that isn't tied to a program of lack. 
because it's not like, well, I need to help people so I feel better about myself. Like it's, I just like helping people. If I think of, ooh, I want a good job so I can make a lot of money because that wanting a lot of money is tied to, I've never had a lot. I want to be able to do these things and money is the solution to my problem. Got it. So I think that if the want, desire, or need is rooted in, like, the be-all, end-all, this will answer all my questions and all my problems, like, probably not. Got it. Because underneath that, there's this idea that in some way you're lacking something. Mm-hmm. And it'll never be enough. Exactly. Which ties back into that purpose and searching for what it is that is fulfilling. And as this program points out, you have conscious desires, wants, and needs, like helping people or whatever. And I'm not saying that's completely conscious. Then you have like a mixture of the conscious and that program, that lacking program. Like, I want to help people so I feel important. Or you have complete program, want, desires, and needs, like... I need to feel important, therefore I post on Instagram these fake things of me helping people and I'm really not doing anything, just to kind of feed that ego piece. I say that because like some of the things that we want, need and desire, do come from that conscious place of ourselves, that true essence of who we are, Mm -hmm. where other parts of it may be connected to an old programming, but that doesn't mean that we should scrap it all if it's connected to components of our true peace, our true us. Right. I guess. Well, and I, like, in what we've already talked about today, those are the pieces I see being significant enough to work through in order to figure out what, like, what it is that keeps showing up. Like for me, concepts of solitude or, you know, forgiveness or whatever. So I am inviting everyone to join me in what I would consider like taking time for myself and us taking a moment because in the mindfulness online course that Tara Brock offers, they also send you like daily mindfulness quotes and her and Jack Cornfield create these. And so there was one from February 9th that says, if our hearts are ready for anything, we are touched by the beauty and poetry and mystery that fill our world. We find our true refuge in every moment, in every breath. We are happy for no reason. And I just love those. Like they're meaningful, fun. They bring you back to what is present. I mean, because like what Lago teaches is like that core part of ourself is joy, joyful aliveness. And that's kind of the same concepts that that programmer that I'm taking is teaching and kind of what you're saying, like through everything, the core of your being is joyful aliveness. And the benefit of taking time for yourself is reconnecting with your core self, the joyful aliveness It does not mean that things are always easy, but it does mean that there is a peace even in the midst of the hard. I agree with that. There is a peace even in the midst of the hard. 
And the word I would add in my own perspective is that there's a lot of beauty in each life. As always, thank you for listening. You can always check us out on our website at www.stillpointhealing.com. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest at Still Point Healing. And you can email us at so you can heal at stillpointhealing.com with any questions, comments, or topic ideas, or just your stories in general. And until next time, see you later. Bye.